Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today we're discussing one of the books on the Commandant's professional reading list, A New Conception of War, John Boyd, the U.S. Marines, and Maneuver Warfare. My guest today is Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare. He's a 53 pilot by trade, though he also holds military occupational specialties as a forward air controller and requirements officer. His operational experience includes deployments in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Indo-PACOM region. Major Brown has written extensively on maneuver warfare, military history, and future war in articles for Marine Corps Gazette, Strategy Bridge, War on the Rocks, and MCU's own Journal of Advanced Military Studies. Major Brown is also the author of the book we're discussing today, A New Conception of War, John Boyd, The United States Marines, and Maneuver Warfare, published with Marine Corps University Press in 2018, and which was added to the most recent iteration of the Commandant's professional reading list. Major Brown, thanks so much for coming on the show. And thank you very much. I'm very happy to have the chance to uh, talk about my book, and I've long enjoyed the podcast, and it's a very august list of guests on there, and I'm very, uh, I'm very humbled to be joining that list. Well, I got to tell you, Ian, we are so grateful to have had you as part of the MCU team for the past couple of years and, and uh, see the work that you've done at the Krulak Center. There are people who are very good at writing books, who are intellectuals, but who are not always a joy to have around and have conversations with and who maybe can't always be trusted to take an idea and turn it into action. But the work that you've done at the Krulak Center to really help stand that organization and up and put it on the, the forefront of thinking within the Marine Corps and the broader DOD circles, you are not a one-trick pony. You have got some depth to you. So thank you, sir. We are delighted to have you on the team. Yeah, appreciate that. And I have, I have <laughs> fully enjoyed everything that I've done there. It's been a great opportunity. Good. So before we get into our discussion of the book itself, can you give our listeners some background on what led you to write A New Conception of War? Absolutely. And kind of like I think I mentioned in the uh, in either the preface or the introduction, it was almost an accident, if you can call writing a book an accidental project. Um, but it, it really kind of it goes way back to um, when I was going through my master's at Norwich and I had uh, for the military thought and theory section you had to write a short paper on the ideas of a military theorist. And I thought I'd get clever and try and punk my professor who was a, uh, he was a retired Canadian Colonel of armor in Canada and try and pick somebody who he hadn't heard of, or at least I would have thought he hadn't heard of because most of the other students were civilians. They were all writing about Sunza or Clausewitz or, you know, one of some of the big names in military theory. And I was like, I don't really know much about Boyd, but I, you know, as a Marine, I know, uh, I remember he, Talked about him in MCDP one, and I've seen the OODA loop and some of the aviation tactics briefs I've seen. So I'll just go find out a little bit more. And you know, if I as a Marine don't know that much about Boyd, there's no way this this retired Canadian Colonel is going to know anything about it. And it totally backfired because when I pitched him <laughs> the, the paper, uh, he was like, and he never used my name. He just called me Marine because he he just liked to treat his Marine students that way. But he was like, Marine Boyd is one of my favorites. You better not screw it up. And I was like, whoops. Um, <laughs> So I, I wrote the paper with a little uh, a little more trepidation about how it was going to turn out. Um, but that the paper turned into the, into the genesis for my final thesis for the master's. And then my advisor, who uh, was a former MCU guest professor several years back, suggested I pitch it over to the Marine Corps History magazine that was just standing up at that point. And this is about 2016, I want to say. 
you know, thinking they'd be looking for new content for a new journal. So I, I took his recommendation. I did that and I sent it over and they came back and said that it, you know, at about 90 pages, it was too long to be an article in their journal. And I was kind of like sad face, um, but you know, I'll move on with my life. But then they also came back and said, but if you want to make it longer and turn it into a monograph, we will work with you to do that. I've zero experience in doing that, but I was just kind of like, why not? If you're willing to take it, I'll, I'll do some of the work. So they assigned me a fantastic editor, Angela Anderson, who was, uh, you know, she was there as the, uh, the head, head of Marine Corps University Press and is still there. I really felt like they were rolling the dice on it. So I, I appreciated the risk they took and I tried to turn back in a, a good product. And I don't, don't know what the road is for writing a book and I got to find out, um, but it was, it was a fantastic experience. Their editors were all very helpful. And I'm extremely grateful that they were able to turn it into a book, which then a couple of years later was able to make it onto the reading list, which I certainly never expected uh, going into it. Well, I would say uh, to our listeners, this is not a paid advertisement for Marine Corps University Press, although I think Ian has pointed out uh, one of the things that we really value about the press, and that is their willingness to work with authors to help improve their writing, give constructive feedback and really strengthen the research and the final product prior to publication. The real value that I, I got from, I think, you know, the press from taking a, and a very uneven initial thesis is that they were able to help me kind of find and, and focus it to where it was, you know, let's say, you know, this is a, this is a me project to something that could be of value to a much wider audience. And really, and in the process of it, they helped me, they helped sort of give it two aspects that I think make it useful for the broader audience of Marines. Um, you know, the first one was just telling a story that has not been, it's been told in pieces, but they're all kind of scattered all over the place. And they're, they're, there's not really a one-stop shop for like the story of how Marine Corps, the Marine Corps, not other entities, adopted maneuver warfare as a doctrine in the late Cold War. So they were able to bring that focus to that and have a, you know, what I, what I hope is a, as much a one-stop shop about that story um, as you can find. And the other good thing that the, the process that McCup did was pushing me to find other material that hadn't been previously released to get the ideas of, of Boyd, um, you know, as the central character, John Boyd, out into a wider audience because the archives have all of his stuff, right? Air Force Colonel, but the Marine Corps archives has all his stuff, <laughs> which is a whole different story. But there's a tremendous amount of, you know, a lot of people have written about Boyd, but the archives themselves, there's a huge amount of unused and untapped material there from his papers. So I wanted to, you know, in the scope I had in the book, I wanted to get as much stuff out there as I could, because in starting all the way back when I tried to punk my professor and then the whole process later on, I realized al almost the way it is, you know, with Sun Tzu and Clausewitz, a lot of people think they know what Boyd said or what his arguments were, and they like to throw darts at what they think the weak points are, but that's not what he said. Right. And it's um, it's either through a third or fourth or fifth party or, you know, you know, everybody quotes Clausewitz, Right. But nobody actually reads him. Well, a lot of people quote Boyd, but they haven't gone into the the first, you know, the primary source material to see what it is he actually said. So the, the press really helped, I think, fix that gap as much as we could in one book. Well, and I think it's also interesting. You point out that the archives have our Marine Corps archives at the History Division here at MCU have the Boyd archival material. And it's, uh, I think, an illustration of our archives here at History Division at the university have just an, they're an incredible resource for military historians that oftentimes go untapped. And so that's, that's incredible that you were able to access them and pull that information, pull that knowledge out of 
the filing system, the physical filing system that we've got in the archives. We're working on having our archives digitized, and we are so excited for the opportunity another year or two for now, uh, from now to make those available to researchers who aren't able to physically come to Quantico. Uh, but if you can't physically come to Quantico, there's a whole lot of information that is valuable and meaningful to telling the story of the Marine Corps, and now also, as you suggest, an Air Force theorist who has deeply informed Marine Corps thinking and doctrine. Last yeah, paid absolutely. advertisement that I'll make for the press, and then we're going to jump into the content of your book. I assume that several of our listeners will not have yet read your book when they hear this episode. My hope is they'll be inspired from our conversation to get your book and read it. And the advertisement for the press is, it is an actual university press accredited by the Association of University Presses. But it is also a federal entity, and so all of its publications are available free of charge. So you can get Ian's book and read it without it costing you a penny. Just go to the press's website, uh, and you can either access, I believe, a digital version on the website, or you can contact them, and they'll mail you a physical hard copy. Uh, So there is no excuse for any listener not to actually read the book. But as we start this discussion, Ian, can you very briefly lay out your main argument or the the thesis that you pursued as part of this project? Yeah, sure thing, ma'am. So the core of the book is was trying to explain like the whole story of of Boyd's influence on the Marine Corps, why the Marine Corps was receptive at the time to ideas like Boyd's, and understanding the process of how all of these ideas and influencers that were pushing those ideas inside the Marine Corps came together into the formal doctoral pub of MCDP one, you know, which has been with only one in one variation, the capstone warfighting philosophy of the organization ever since. And then kind of as a, a, a secondary core argument, something that I sort of came to later, again, with the help of the editorial process was, it's not just a story about a military branch, but it, it's also almost a, uh, an example of a case study of institutional innovation. Um, and this is actually how I've talked about it a lot since the book came out to various audiences and that, it, you know, you look at it, You've got a, a case study for sort of grassroots bottom-up innovation where you've got a good idea, in this case, Boyd's ideas, his theories. You also have a fertile ground where the idea can take root and grow, which in this case was that post-Vietnam Marine Corps that was you know, doing a lot of introspection. And then uh, the third piece is having some you know, key drivers, some key people in the right places to drive that idea forward inside the receptive institution and really make it stick. So that, that sort of became a, a, an after, um, aftermarket argument in, in my book, but it's something that I, I think stands out as, as part of the story. Great. In chapter three, you reference a quote from Boyd that people, ideas, and hardware in that order of importance are critical for building an organization or fighting a war. Can you unpack that for us? What does he mean by this? Sure. Uh, so this goes back to what was really a core argument of Boyd himself that he sort of explained in different ways through his many different briefings, you know, that, you know, his hours and hours long briefings, but he sort of chopped it up in different perspectives, whether it was military history, strategic competition, command and control models, or many other things. But it goes back to the core idea that of human survival as competition. And it's something that he first explored in one of the few things that he actually wrote that's sort of a coherent document which was an essay called Destruction and Creation. And in this essay, he develops a theoretical model for how humans view the world around them in that they try to survive by ensuring their own personal freedom of action to do things the way they want. You know, I want to I want to do me kind of thing. And how that desire to survive on your own terms naturally brings you into conflict 
with other people and groups who might have some different ideas about surviving on those, their own terms. And when those conflicts can't be resolved peacefully, that's when you go to armed conflict. And the point of all this was that competition is fundamentally driven by human beings. It's a human process, all of whom are making decisions to ensure their own survival and keep their competitors from infringing on that freedom. And so the human person, whether it's an individual or an entire society, is always at the heart of the problem. And that's the boy is trying to emphasize that you can't lose sight of this by thinking whether it's war or competition or, you know, today, great power competition. It's not about the next bright idea, you know, like an operating concept or a national strategy. It's not about the latest shiny piece of technology. It's always about influencing the behavior of your competitor. And bright ideas and shiny things can all be vectors through which you attempt to gain an advantage in that competition. But there's always a human being at the end of that technology chain who you're trying to impact. And you can't lose sight of that. And that's kind of what he was getting at there. Okay, and that's an interesting thing for us to think about in the contemporary context as we look at influence campaigns, information environment, and this sometimes synergy, sometimes friction between uh, material understanding of warfare and and what is a less material, more of a cognitive dimension of warfare. That's a really interesting idea for us to parse out. There are the individual interests and motivations and beliefs. There are the ideas around what is effective and what isn't. And we see this, you know, in, in World War One, shifting into World War Two, where people think there's a cult of the offensive when actually the, the defense has the advantage in World War One, and we end up with trench warfare. So there's this disconnect between the actual reality of warfare and people's ideas or understanding about what warfare should be like. And then, as you mm-hmm. suggest, the material capability or the, the resources Maybe, and I'm, I might be projecting onto Boyd here in terms of military hardware, but also economic capacity, right? And, and the fungibility between economic strength and, and military capacity. Yes, ma'am. And in fact, he uh, kind of near the back end of his longest brief, he, he goes more into not, not necessarily specific economic, but sort of more, you know, what we would call whole of government today. Not didn't necessarily call it that back in his time, but there's different, different levers and different aspects of how to, how to compete how to influence and how to gain that advantage over your competitor. And he, you know, it's not, it's not that the technology or if it's an economic lever or military lever or what have you, it's not that it's irrelevant. It's just understanding that it's not an end in itself. The objective is always a, you know, competition with another group of humans who have their own levers, their own, their own shiny objects or bright ideas. And you have to understand, you know, the, your, your competitors, human motivations, their human decision-making processes, they're human drivers in order to make your levers advantageous to you and their levers less advantageous to them. So let's lay this on top of theories of war fighting. So in the book, you tease out Boyd's idea that people who use Clausewitz as their only filter to look at a problem, that they're stuck in the 19th century, that their thinking hasn't moved beyond 1832. This seems like an illustration of your of Boyd's point that it's people and then ideas are kind of a layer on top of that. And Clausewitzian thinking is an idea, right? It's one of those layers on top of individual motivations and interests. So as you have pointed out, and anyone who has spent more than a couple of weeks with the Marine Corps is aware, there is this cult of John Boyd in the Marine Corps too. And so how does the Marine Corps prevent this same weakness from developing through its own? And I love me, General Gray. So please, General Gray, if you hear this, I love you so much. 
but the Marine Corps has this unwavering commitment to maneuver warfare, right? We have this unwavering commitment to the OODA loop, to Boyd's conception of the OODA loop. Are these ideas that might be distracting us from the real motivation and intention and real focus where we should be spending our time and, and attention? Yeah, so that that's a that's absolutely fair question for an institution to grapple with. And there's there's actually been a lot written recently over the last couple of years, even uh, in Marine Corps Gazette and elsewhere that's specifically argued that maneuver warfare, it's insufficient or obsolete to the challenges of the 21st century. But, you know, kind of to your to your point, even back, you know, back to General Gray and some of the other other folks there is that for those who understood not not the 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 tweet version of John Boyd or a maneuver warfare, but the deeper underlying framework that's there for starters, they would understand that like going back to Boyd himself, he'd be the first one to tell you that you have to constantly change and update the filters through which you view the world to maintain your advantage in that er area of human competition that we just talked about. He himself was never one about locking himself into one idea. And in fact, there's, I think I quote, um, there's an anecdote from John Schmidt, who was the author of the original FMFM one, war fighting under General Gray, and then he did the uh, the lion's share of the revisions for MCDP-1. That kind of gets to that attitude of Boyd, which was that uh, almost immediately after General Gray signed FMFM-1, Boyd called Schmidt up to sit, basically say like, hey, what you wrote in war fighting is great, but now you've got to change this, 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 and this in it. <laughs> you know, like the ink isn't even dry on the thing. And Boyd's already looking at how to adapt and upgrade it, you know, based on new information. And that's in kind of in line with what General Kulak wrote in his own introduction in MCDP-1, when it turned from the FMFM to the MCDP. They specifically say doctrine can't be stagnant. It, it doesn't stand still, you know, there, and because the world doesn't stand still. And so, you know, I think, I think Boyd and some of those, those folks who had the, the deeper understanding of the fullness of the concept and the doctrine would, would 100% say that you are absolutely, you're definitely guilty of blinding yourself by locking yourself you know, into this golden age of thinking, thinking it's 1989 or 1997, as guilty as it would be about saying Clausewitz got everything right in 1832. We don't need to explore war any further. Further, we just need to, we need, we need to do Clausewitz better. And so, I think before we look at adapting and moving beyond, we have to understand the fullness of the concepts that drove maneuver warfare the first time around. And so, you know, before you start adjusting your mental model, which you have to, which you should do, which you know Boyd and all the others would say you have to do. You have to understand what's in that model to make sure your adjustment doesn't get rid of something valuable. You know, the goal of my book is not to say that we, we should lock ourselves into this, you know, this great story from the 80s and 90s. We just do, you know, do this, do this more and better and we'll be fine. But before we can move on, we need to understand the fullness of the story. And that's kind of what I tried to get at in the book is like, we'll give you the big picture as best we understand it. Now you've got the background to inform future uh, future adjustments and changes. And I'll toot my own horn here for a second and something else. But in 2016, I wrote an article for the Gazette that specifically said we got to update warfighting. The, the article was called Warfighting 3.0. And I went, it was like, you know, chapters one, two, three, four. These are, these are, you know, Major Brown's recommendations on what we would change to adapt it to 21st century challenges. You know, certain things that exist now that did not exist back then, especially, you know, the information in the digital age. 1997, when MCDP1 was revised, that stuff was in sort of very nascent form, just, just sort of coming online. Now we're immersed in it. So it's totally fair to, to say we, we should maybe speak to this aspect of it. But my other goal with that article on, on adjusting it was grounding it within the, the consistency of the intellectual framework that's come before. 
Because if you understand the fullness of that framework, there's actually a lot that's already there. There's stuff that Boyd talked about that is 100% applicable to you know the information we, world we live in today. But that's not the stuff that was taught down kind of through the ages, you know, from from 1989. That stuff, read the book, you can kind of find out why some of that stuff fell by the wayside. But it did, and so um, we can definitely look forward. But before we jump off, we gotta there, there's stuff still in that that bedrock of maneuver warfare that is useful. So we need to understand all of it before we start looking at what we're cutting away from the edges and what we're going to slap onto it. I think that's really useful. In the book, you focus on the post-Vietnam era as, I don't want to call it a watershed because I don't want to make it too dramatic, but as an important moment in the birth of maneuver warfare and that toward the end or at the end of the Vietnam War, the Marine Corps faced this question of, what was the Corps to do? How was the Corps to do it? And maneuver warfare was the answer to those questions and an effective answer for the time. We've seen a lot uh, with force design. We've seen a lot, you know, the new Global Global Trends 2040 just came out last month and paints a not so rosy picture of the next two decades of our collective lives. So in 2021, I'm going to ask you that question. What is the Marine Corps to do? How is the Marine Corps to do it? Are there lessons from your book that can help inform this thinking? I absolutely think so. And I'll, I'll preface and say this, this may wind up being a long-winded answer, but I hope it's coherent. You know, but to call the, you know, the end of Vietnam a watershed, I think it's fair. And, and in fact, the image I usually use in my presentation on the subject is that helicopter taking off the embassy mm-hmm. in Saigon with yeah. people trying to get on board it. That right there kind of, it speaks to a very visceral level of the consequences of failure of, of running away. Well, not, I mean, we left for our own reasons, right. But we left without what we considered the job being finished. And we had a whole bunch of people who were begging to come out with us. And that forced a lot of very hard questions about how they got, how that image happened. And it wasn't just the Marine Corps, all the, all the armed forces were looking at it in the United States, but the, the Marines who came out of it at the time, believed that those were two very serious questions. What is the core? What do we do and how do we do it? And they believed that they owed some serious thought and serious answers to that question, you know, to their own Marines as well as to the American public who are the ones who are they're ultimately responsible to. So I hope you don't think this is kind of a cop-out answer, but I think the same cultural answer that I, I get at in the book is is still the right answer for the Marine Corps today. And that cultural answer is a it's not a doctrine. It's not a, it's not a table of organization, but it's an attitude that historically, culturally seems to be hardwired into the Marine Corps, which is that it's, it's inherently an adapted organization whose relevancy has come from the ability to look at the challenges around it and change itself as required to meet those challenges. And I spend a little time on this in the book because, you know, those questions coming out of Vietnam, the, the challenge was, What's the utility of an amphibious force in the late Cold War when the big threat is Soviet tanks coming through the Fulda Gap and there didn't seem to be much the Marine Corps could offer in that particular scenario? And there was also kind of a fixation on that that amphibious piece, even this idea that the Marines only exist to do Iwo Jima over and over again, which loses sight of the fact that historically the Marine Corps has done a ton more than just Iwo Jima's or you know, what we call forcible entry today. And I, I spent a little time getting into that because I think it's very important to show that change over time. You know, the amphibious warfare piece, for example, was it, it wasn't even the Corps' primary mission until after World War II. And, you know, the Corps had been around for, you know, over 150 years at that point. And then even after World War II, which is what that golden age of, you know, amphibious warfare, 
that everybody kind of looks back to, the National Security Act of 1947 gave the Corps 11 different specified or implied missions beyond forcible entry. And so the throughout that spectrum of its history, the thing that that is true, and it sounds kind of trite, but I, I think it's true and the evidence bears it out, is that it's about being adapted and ready. It's not sim- And it's not simply the readiness in terms of how quick can we throw our stuff on a ship and get to the crisis point, but it's that readiness for the most likely challenges in the world around you. And those challenges will constantly change. And so your readiness requires an institutional adaptability that allows you to change your specific mission without losing your institutional identity along the way. And this gets back to the issue of today. You know, what is the core to, to do today and how are we going to do it? And I think we have to understand the history because I think today the core is still, what do we do? We are that forward-looking first responder. We're ready to be the first ones in for whatever the challenge of today or tomorrow is. And how we do this is by having the institutional flexibility to change ourselves radically, if necessary, to confront that challenge. And I, speaking for myself here, and I'm not trying to paint a broad brush to some of the critiques that have come out regarding some of the you know, the changes to force design and mm-hmm. structure and all that that's come out. But I think it's a, a lack of total appreciation of that historical flexibility across the centuries we've existed that drives a little, you know, some of those critiques. It's, it's not understanding who we are as an institution because the core, you know, if, if you're upset that we're divesting this or that weapon system or we're, we're reorganizing the table of organization for this type of unit, the core is not defined by a weapon system. We're not defined by, you know, a specific mission. Like I said, we've had dozens and dozens of missions assigned over time. We're not defined by our table of organization or an operating concept. What I think really defines us is our flexibility to change weapon systems or embrace new missions or embrace new tables of organization, because that's what the threat of the day requires. And because that institutional flexibility lies in the minds and attitude of our people, this goes back to that people, ideas, things perspective of Boyd, almost without being conscious of it. Um, and that's another point I tried to make in the book is that part of why Boyd's ideas were attractive was because th- that hierarchy of uh, a priority and that ability to change and adapt yourself to stay competitive was something that in an almost unconscious fashion was baked into the cultural, the hardwired you know, operating system of the Marine Corps. And it's just Boyd put that attitude into words and kind of gave it an intellectual framework that provided some more rigor to something that was already going on. So that was a very long answer to the question, but I hope it answered it. No, I think it was a, a, a good answer to the question. As you were giving that answer, I was thinking, and I don't recall seeing this in the book, so correct me if I missed it. But one of the things that I find intellectually interesting and professionally frustrating about force design is that we're having it in the broader context of economic constriction in the sense that resources are scarce. We are year into the pandemic and the economy is is doing far better, I think, than most of us would have predicted a year ago. But we are seeing budgets tighten and resources being less available in this fiscal year than they were last fiscal year than they were the year before. And we anticipate that that scarcity is going to continue moving forward. So is Boyd grappling with these broader socioeconomic constraints and how that might shape? How would you recommend the Marine Corps grapple with those broader socioeconomic constraints and how that might shape us as we move forward with force design? Because it's just a reality, right? We can't get out of it. It's just the reality of the world we're living in right now. 
I, I don't think Boyd is quite as specific on those aspects of it, but that's something where I, I don't go into a huge amount of detail in the book, you know, but I, I know kind of the history behind it, but it's, it's a place where the Marine Corps has been before. Mm-hmm. And I go back and starting in, even that window between uh, World War II and Korea, you know, if we want to simply talk about tables of organization and, and thinking about your force structure in a resource constrained environment, you know, like World War II, like the U.S. does after almost all of its wars, like it draws down, like it sends every cuts, sends everybody's home because the standing military is not our thing. Right. At least until kind of we realize after that, after Korea, that we, we sort of needed that. But in that window, the Marine Corps is also looking at the challenge of warfare on a nuclear battlefield. That was the new big thing. I'd, I'd have to find uh, I, the resources. I don't remember their titles, but I've, I've read a number of very good things that talk about how in that window, when like the core is being drawn down from like it's, oh, I don't know what it had, six or seven land divisions, massive aviation elements, you know, it, it grew hugely and then it drew down mm-hmm. even just as radically. But inside of that, they were changing and adapting. There were at least two or three significant changes to the tables of organization and equipment inside the Marine Corps in that window between World War II and Korea to try and get it ready for the um, the nuclear battlefield. And this is also where the, uh, you know, rotor-wing aviation, the helicopters very slowly starting to come online. And the Marine Corps didn't have, you know, really large numbers or even more than a couple of helicopters, but they were still looking at how to use it, how to organize themselves without having all the stuff, right? I think the last table of organization change happened really right before the Korean War broke out. But they had gone through several different iterations without the money to like to fill all the all the slots in the TONE in there. But they were still tinkering and changing and adapting with it. And they were still looking forward it. We don't have it, you know, more than one or two helicopters. You know, there's the one general, you know, Brew Krulak is hanging down from in Quantico. And maybe there's one or two others. Right. But they were looking at how if they had those things, they could make them work so that when Korea broke out and they had to start filling all those holes in the TONE and building out helicopter squadrons, the ideas were there. And honestly, that's really just, it's another echo of what the Corps did between World War I and World War II, which I think we all know the story of, you know, nobody had landing craft, you know, nobody had massive numbers of tanks or uh, large numbers of aviation, but the amphibious warfare construct and concept was done in that resource-constrained environment. So I think, honestly, like, we do some of our best work in that resource-constrained environment because it almost takes us off of, like, chasing the shiny object or the laser dot on the floor and uh, focuses to really sort of close our eyes and use our imagination about what we can do with different things rather than focusing on, you know, one or two shiny things that are right in front of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and again, I am no economist and I am no historian, but I also think this period at the end of the Vietnam War as maneuver, as our understanding of maneuver warfare, General Gray's understanding of maneuver warfare was solidifying and and becoming Marine Corps doctrine this was a period of of economic hardship in the United States as well, right? A serious inflationary pressure through the United States, um, some economic conscription. You guys remember gas prices were through the roof. I was a little bitty baby, so I I actually don't remember, but uh, but I have heard tell that that was true. So it, it gives a further credence to your point that these periods of it's hard to say scarcity because we still are a country of abundance and wealth, but those periods of of contraction can actually foster some really profoundly important innovation. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely, man. And I, there's, you know, I forget who said the quote, but it's, you know, we're out of money now. It's time to think, mm-hmm. I think really captures that because it's almost, it's almost liberating because you're not forcing yourself to find gainful employment for all these little, these things you have, the shiny objects or what have you. You can imagine 
what if on kind of a on kind of a blank slate when you're not tied into uh, you know one thing that you feel like you have to use to justify its continued existence or its funding, for example. So, what surprised you when you were working on this book, other than the fact that the Boyd collection is in the Marine Corps archives, not the Air Force archives? Yes, yes. So I, I knew a little bit about that. I was, uh, <laughs> I was, I was still impressed at the the depth of the collection. So there were there are a couple of things, you know, kind of in that vein. Um, and as I, I mentioned above, like when I first started this, I knew Boyd from the OODA loop and you know from a little reference in MCDP one. And I was one thing I was surprised at was, and the, the archives really show this was the depth of the the depth of the well of his ideas. And then came a corollary as I kept going was that a lot of the critiques, both of his ideas and of, you know, the maneuver warfare as a warfighting philosophy have not grappled with those ideas as they were written, as they were developed. I think I mentioned before, a lot of people, uh, I think lots of people are kind of whacking at a straw man when they come critiquing Boyd and some of his ideas. And it's not that no military thinkers beyond criticism, you know, everyone's got strengths and weakness. Klauswitz has strengths and weaknesses. Sun Tzu has strengths and weaknesses. But um, as I went through the archival material and I started to see the depth of this well, it, it just kind of it bothered me that a lot of these conceptions people have of, of his ideas, you know, the tweet version of it, they're just they're wrong. You know, I've people arguing that the OODA loop is just it's a closed, simple four step process. They're wrong. If they think that that is the core of his ideas, right, like boys equals the OODA loop, everything else is just footnotes. That's wrong, too. Um, in fact, I sp- it was about a month ago over at the strategy and policy course at the MAGTAF Instructional Group. I gave my brief to the students there, and without even realizing it, I spent an hour talking about Boyd's ideas and their impact on the Marine Corps. I didn't mention the OODA loop once, because you almost don't have to, because it is it is not the, the core engine driving his ideas. Um, in fact, the history of the OODA loop is he didn't even sort of put it into a visual depiction until close to the end of his life. He talks about it a bunch of, bunch of times, but doesn't really explain it, And but he spends the core, like, the eight hour brief he gave to the Marines, you know, time and time again, it's mentioned in passing once or twice. There are many other things he talks about very extensively and the OODA loop is not one of them. So it is not, it is not vital. And that goes back to, and, and there's a bunch of misconceptions about the loop itself. Like it was just came from air to air tactics. That's, that's wrong. That's, I can prove that documentarily it's wrong. If, you know, thinking that boy, it only applies to that sort of more conventional tank on tank warfare it doesn't apply to insurgencies, or as we talked about, it doesn't apply to information warfare today. It's 100% wrong. In fact, there is there a lot of the stuff that I, I was not really able to get into the book and, and delve into, but which is in his presentations is looking at environments where narrative and influence and um, messaging and setting an example of behavior versus your actual actions. And this applies to a country as much as it does to organizations and individuals. These things that we're talking about now in the realm of great power competition and information warfare, it's all there. It is, it's, it's just not easily accessible. And so that's uh, surprising. I, I tried to do my best inside of one book to address some of those things and bring out some of those things to show that there's just so much more there than there really is. What I would just hope out of all that is that for those who, you know, again, nobody's beyond critique. Um, no idea is perfect, but you, you owe it to the, integrity of the discussion to be engaging with the ideas as they actually are, not as what somebody else has written for clickbait. I, I'd say there's a lot more in there to be explored and discovered. So if you want to get in there and really wrestle with and grapple with the strengths and weaknesses, it, it's there, but just go look at what he said. I did my best to be a uh, shine some light on this stuff, but I'm not saying my interpretation is perfect either. Go look at what he said and what he wrote because it's there. 
So our last question for you, what are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? So on the topic of Boyd, um, <laughs> I've actually got a, uh, I was asked by the Swedish Defense University to do a lecture on how Boyd's ideas could impact air power doctrine for smaller state air forces that are hmm. facing stronger neighbors. And so uh, I'm using the Winter War of 1940 as one of my sort of examples of that, uh, of the Soviet Union invading Finland with its much smaller forces. So I have a bunch of titles about the Winter War on my desk that I'm going through. One is Vesa Nene's Finland at War, William Trotter's Frozen Hell, and Carl Friedrich Goist's Red Wings in the Winter War. I never read anything about the Winter War, but now I'm learning. So that's what I'm reading. Fascinating. I look forward to getting the Cliff Notes version when you're done with that. That sounds really interesting. So Major Brown, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at at Marine Corps U. Special thanks to our intrepid producer, Jen Patcha Howell, and our show manager, Captain Michael Goff. And congratulations, Captain Goff, on your promotion. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of Marine Corps University. 